Inside the Adventure, episode number 68, with Jesse Stone. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. This is your host, Marshall Mosher, and today we're going to hear the story of Dr. Jesse Stone, the founder of Soft Power Health, a medical treatment and education center in Uganda that's transforming both access to education and prevention of the most devastating disease in all of Uganda, malaria. As a medical doctor and member of the U.S. women's freestyle kayaking team, Dr. Stone participated in a kayaking expedition along Uganda's White Nile that first brought her to the region in 2003. During this trip, a member of her group contracted a severe case of malaria that she was fortunately able to treat. However, her experience with the disease made her acutely aware of the devastating effects malaria was taking on the Ugandan population. Determined to help control this health crisis, she founded Soft Power Health in 2004. Today, she and her staff continue to expand upon and improve the range of healthcare services and education that provides to the region. As a raft guide turned doctor to professional kayaker to entrepreneur to Ugandan healthcare hero, Jessie has always had a mindset of limitless possibilities, a part of her personality formed from her early childhood. So I am from a town called Purchase, New York, which um, when I was growing up was real countryside outside of New York City, about an hour northeast of New York City, um, is today what would be considered hardcore suburbs. But I was incredibly lucky growing up because I got to spend all of my time outside and totally unsupervised. So I I did a lot of exploring and um, had wonderful backyard to play in and woods to explore and rivers and streams and things like that. And as a young girl, I was an avid fisherman, believe it or not. Um, so as, you know, as life went on, um, I was, you know, East coast born and raised, and I got really interested in seeing another part of the country when I went to college. So I applied only to schools in California And I got into UC Berkeley and I went to Berkeley for my undergrad. And it was during my summer's uh, working, uh, my summer job, if you will, was raft guiding uh, when I was at Berkeley. And so I spent a lot of time learning about rivers in California and um, getting get into raft guiding, by the way, Uh, was was kayaking something you did back then or was it? No, 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 no. Kayaking was like that crazy sport. Like, why do people do that? They're going to die if they go upside down. I don't really understand it. Um, I, uh, you know, as as a kid, I always loved the water. I loved swimming. I was on a swim team. I was just, you know, I was like literally a kid that my dad used to say she was never bathed enough as a child. So she has to spend so much time in the water. Um, So. Uh, so anyway, I, uh, well, this is, this is how a lot of things happen in life. I suppose, uh, there was a really cute guy in my political science class, my first semester of college. And I met him and, uh, we were talking about summer jobs and he's like, well, you should become a rafting guide. That's what I do. And I was like, rafting guide. Okay. I don't even know what that is. And, uh, he told me a little bit about it. And, um, 
I signed up for a guide school at Whitewater Voyages in California on the South Fork of the American River. And, um, and then out of the guide school, I got hired. And then I started working on these rivers uh, during my summertime. And I saw kayakers, but it looked way too scary to me. I thought, yeah, I don't know about that. I'm not really sure about this whole kayaking thing. And um, so I spent a number of years raft guiding in California. And then I got a job working on the Zambezi during my last year of college. So I actually took half the year off to guide on the Zambezi. And, um, and I injured my shoulder when I was on the Zambezi actually before, but it got a lot worse on the Zambezi. And then I came back and I had to have surgery. What so happened with the injury, by the way, I was, I basically had a dislocated shoulder that I became a repeat dislocator. So, um, I, my shoulder would pop out of the socket and I would be able to put it back in. And I, I could always do that. So I never, it never occurred to me that maybe I should see a doctor until I got back and, um, and then my shoulder was coming out. Like when I was sleeping, I would put my arm over my head and my shoulder would fall out. And I was like, this cannot be normal. So I finally went and saw a surgeon and he said, yeah, you need surgery, um, to fix this, especially if you want to continue to be active. And I was like, okay, then this is what I have to do. So through the process of having surgery, it really opened my eyes to the world of medicine. I had been a philosophy and political science major in college. And I was like, wow, but medicine, you actually have a skill. You can really help people. You can do something good for people. And um, so after the surgery, I decided, and this was during my very last semester of college, okay, um, I need to do all the pre-med requirements because I want to go to med school. Well, I couldn't do that at Berkeley. I had They kicked me out. I had too many credits. I had to graduate. So then I applied for a post-bac pre-med program, um, which exist, believe it or not. And, um, so in that interim period, I spent, um, a summer working as a raft guide at a kayak school in Oregon. And during that time, um, I really got introduced to kayaking. I I was able to basically take a few days of their beginning kayak course. And I loved it. I mean, I was just, it was bizarre. I was hooked instantly. It was kind of, once I, you know, could roll and, and once I loved, you know, sort of had that experience of being independent and free in your own boat that was small and maneuverable, I said, I am never getting in a raft again. And um, then what ended up happening was I did this post-bac pre-med program and I got into medical school and then I had this big dilemma. Oh my God, I love kayaking, but oh my God, I just got into medical school. All right, I'm going to go to medical school and then I'll just try to kayak in the summer. And what were and- you thinking before... Like, what was the plan before you really found this passion for for medicine as well? When when you were an undergrad, what was uh, kind of your mindset for what you wanted to do and what you wanted? to I don't think there was a plan. plan. Yeah, there was kind of like, oh, I like that. It's, I mean, I really took advantage of a liberal arts education when I was at Berkeley because I studied, you know, different languages. I took peace and conflict studies. I took history. I, you know, I, I took all kinds of, uh, like the most sort of broad reach of coursework, uh, you know, political science, different philosophy, all this kind of stuff. And, um, it, and it was really fun and it was really interesting and, and all of that, but none of it was sort of like, oh, I want to get a PhD in philosophy, you know, no. Um, but I really, it, it was, 
the appeal of having a, a tangible, usable skill where you could really help people that appealed to me so much about medicine. And, and also, I think part of it, too, the challenge of it. You know, it was sort of like it was not an easy field to go into. You really had to be committed to doing this. It wasn't just like, well, today I feel like medicine and tomorrow I feel like law school and maybe the day after I'll go to business school. You know, it was just um, it, it, it tested your fortitude, if you will. And um, so that kind of kept me going. I wanted to I wanted to see this challenge through. And um, and I was lucky because during my summers, I could go back and work at this kayak school in Southern Oregon, which still exists today called Sundance Expeditions. And it was one of the first kayak schools founded in the country after um, NOC. There was NOC, then there was Sundance, and then there was Otter Bar. Those were kind of like the three big kayak schools. And um, so there was a great crew of people um, working there. They were like a big family. Um, you know, they were wonderful teachers and um, very inspirational. And so I just felt like I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of this, you know, as much as I can. And as medical school went on, I sort of um, also had a slight dilemma because I didn't see a lot of women in medicine that were really happy. And I, and I just thought I, you know, I saw a lot of, I saw a lot of men that were really happy. I saw a couple of women that were really happy, but they were in pretty, you know, very specialized, tough parts of medicine, like orthopedic surgery, which back then there were very, very few women in, um, you know, and the training for that was sort of notoriously, um, the word they use is malignant, you know? Um, so I just thought I, I really do not want to pursue that path. Um, if, if I don't have to. So, and I would meet with the Dean every year in medical school and say, can I just take another month off to paddle? And finally it got to the point where he was like, okay, you can take this time off to kayak, but you just have to graduate. Okay. I don't care. You know, if you don't do a residency right now, just graduate. So finally, you know, I graduated and then, um, I, you know, we had this little meeting. Okay. If I'm going to do a residency, I'll apply when I'm ready to apply. But right now, I just want to go kayaking. So I, I kind of um, really had a wonderful opportunity to immerse myself in it initially through the kayak school that I worked at and then through a really fortuitous meeting at Golly Fest in 1997 of meeting Eric Jackson. And um, I took a lesson from him. And he kind of introduced me to a whole new way of thinking about kayaking and, and things that I had never been exposed to before. And I think this, a lot of his training in freestyle, you know, came from a very disciplined slalom background, but it really, really helped his freestyle paddling as well. And he was so passionate about it. And, um, so that got me really interested more and how could I how could I become a better paddler? You know what could I do, and um, and then I started going to freestyle kayaking competitions. You know as well as working on um, working on the river, still teaching kayaking. Uh, you know doing sort of like anything I could to help support myself. And back at that time, um, and it's funny when I say you know how long ago this was now because I cannot believe it was nearly 20 years ago or more than 20 years ago. That's bizarre, but kayaking was kind of this sport that was really emerging, 
And there was a lot of interest in it. And in particular, freestyle kayaking. So back then I was able to land a few sponsorships, which helped pay for my lifestyle. And that was, that was very wonderful. And I still, the whole time was thinking, you know, what am I going to do with this medical degree? Um, I am an MD. I want to do something with it, but I haven't figured out what it is yet. And, um, I worked at a few wilderness medical conferences. Those were really fun, but they were intermittent, you know? Um, and then in 2003, EJ said, okay, come on, we're going to film the playboating video, the, you know, the more advanced playboating video, we're going to go back to the Zambezi and we're going to go to the Nile. And I said, okay, great. You know, I'm coming, I'm there. And, um, so we went to the Zambezi and I was really excited about that because I hadn't been back since I'd been a rafting guide. And, um, you know, it, would, it was just like a thrill to think of going back in a kayak and, um, had you been anywhere internationally in a kayak before? And wh- how does that level of whitewater compare to what you'd been doing? <laughs> I mean, I, I had actually, um, thanks in large part to EJ and also to some really good friends in college who I raft guided with. So I had the opportunity to work at this camp um, on the Fudlafu River in Chile for a number of years. And so I was I was doing kayak instruction and some safety kayaking and stuff like that for them. So I spent quite a bit of time in Chile doing that. And then um, I also had the opportunity to do some other crazy trips with EJ we filmed his strokes and concepts video in Ecuador um, in the, it was January of 2002. And we had a serious adventure doing that. I mean, it was, it was incredibly fun and crazy. And like, if you've spent any time with EJ, which I don't know if you have, um, it always ends up being fun and crazy um, and has a good result. But, you know, we had this epic getting lost in the jungle and having to portage our kayaks. You know, literally, we spent the night lying on top of our kayaks in the jungle getting devoured by bugs. And then we had to hike out, basically, of the jungle. We couldn't get back to the river. And, you know, so we arrived the next day. Um, finally, we found some people that could take us back to the road. And we took a bus back to the town. It was a total epic um, but it was a great adventure. I mean, it was it was really, um, you know, like the kind of uh, adventure that probably everybody should have, <laughs> really. Um, but uh, so, yes, there was definitely international travel for kayaking uh, before I had gone back to Africa. And um, I'd been to New Zealand as well. That was that was a lot of fun. Um, so you'd had enough experience had a- to know that when EJ asks you to come on a pretty awesome trip somewhere outside of the US, you, you say yes, because it's going to be pretty, pretty epic, right? Oh, absolutely. Like no hesitation. And, um, and also because I was personally so curious about going back to the Zambezi in the, in a kayak, cause I'd been, you know, rowing these huge, you know, um, giant 16 foot rafts filled with people and water down, down the Zambezi with huge, you know, oars. And I just wanted to see, God, what was, what would the river be like in a, in a freestyle kayak as opposed to a barge, you know? Um, so that was amazing. And then going to the Nile was really interesting because at that time, um, so few kayakers had gone to the Nile. There were just a handful and rafting was really beginning as a business there. Whereas on the Zambezi, it was a big business at this point. Um, 
So when we got to the Nile and, you know, this, this river, the difference, big difference between the Nile and the Zambezi is that the Nile is incredibly easily accessible from anywhere. So you don't have to hike deep into a gorge and run a predicted section of the river and hike back up. You have access almost anywhere along the banks to paddle. And so that also meant that, you know, human life is much more connected to the river there in Uganda than it is um, on the Zambezi, where it's more mythological, um, more people are removed from it. Um, and so, uh, you know, that part of it was really interesting to see as well. And then um, thanks very much to EJ, he got malaria when we were on the Nile and um, I ended up having to treat him. And I kind of thought, this is crazy because we'd heard that malaria was really bad in Uganda. But then when EJ actually got sick, I was like, wow, this guy's taking prophylaxis. He's sleeping under a mosquito net and he still got malaria. You know, what is the deal for local people here? Are they sick all the time? You know, what is the story? Do they have mosquito nets? You know, it was just kind of like general questions like that, that I started to ask and I was really interested in. And then as it turns out, EJ had followed Steve Fisher's advice about malaria, which was, you know, real men don't take prophylaxis. So he didn't take any and neither did Steve. And they both got malaria on that trip. So, um, I think EJ absolutely definitely learned his lesson and I have no idea if Steve did or not, but, um, you know, every subsequent trip to the Nile, EJ was definitely taking his prophylaxis and not getting malaria. Yeah. But were you uh, were you able to really pull from your medical training to diagnose and treat that? It was very obvious just because, um, you know, it, it's sort of just by basic deduction, right? Like the most common infectious disease in that part of the world is malaria. And then this, you know, the the most obvious symptom is a high fever. And sure enough, you know, within like a week of our being there, EJ is, you know, shaking chills and a really high fever and feels terrible. Uh, and if you know EJ at all, you know, he never misses a day of kayaking, no matter how bad he feels. So the fact that he then couldn't really paddle with us for the rest of the trip meant he was, he felt like he was about to die. Um, so, you know, in that sense, yes, the, the, the figuring out what it was, was not, too hard. But what was really interesting though, was just the, to me was the question of like, okay, it's impacting us, but what about everyone else in the area? Like, is this something that totally debilitates them so that they can't have, you know, healthy, productive lives? Um, what do they do? And so that trip was a, a relatively short trip to the Nile because we were filming this uh, play boating video and, and then EJ was sick. Um, and, but I met a woman who had founded another nonprofit organization in the area. She was married to the guy whose campsite we were staying at. And, um, I was asking her questions. What do you know about malaria? And, you know, is anybody doing anything like educationally or preventative wise, and she said, I don't know anything about malaria because <laughs> I'm in education. Um, but, you know, school education, primary education for school kids. Um, but, you know, I can help you. I can introduce you to somebody from the local area who um, could help you learn more. So she did that. And um, I came back later that year and um, made a survey in that same village 
uh, 50 homes and um, to find out essentially what do people know about malaria? You know, do, do they understand how it's transmitted? Do they have mosquito nets? How much money do they spend every month on treating malaria? How often do family members die? You know, were they interested in learning more? Were they interested in purchasing mosquito nets? You know, just a basic questionnaire to kind of figure out what's going on here. And it was, it was fascinating because out of 50 homes that we visited, no one that we interviewed understood that malaria was transmitted by a mosquito. So then that led to why would you have a mosquito net if, you know, mosquitoes don't transmit malaria? So not, um, a, not a single person in an area where malaria is the, the biggest disease knew that, that mosquitoes were the way to transmit that? It seems like an incredibly no. massive lack of information. But that's the thing that, like, that you really realize is that, um, you know, this is for an educated person like yourself or myself, it's really hard to put your mind in that frame of what's it like to have, you know, the most basic education, say, up to third grade and then not be able to go to school anymore. How do you, you know, figure out why and how things happen? And so a lot of it is mythology rumor, and then what maybe adults in your life, your parents or your older siblings tell you. And so there are, we're all kinds of, and we see some of this still today, but you know, back then there were all kinds of crazy rumors that people would say, like, if you eat too many mangoes, you're going to get malaria. You know, if it's raining, you're going to get malaria. If someone sneezes on you, you're going to get malaria. You know, I mean, and in some ways you can follow the logic and think, okay, that's, that's not totally crazy, but, um, it didn't help them in any way understand that the mosquito was involved in transmitting the malaria. So, um, so the, the thing that was really cool was that uh, people expressed such an interest in learning that um, I said, well, how about if we just set up some basic educational intervention, um, you know, really simple with pictures in the local language that you don't have to have any education to understand. And uh, so we started these education sessions for malaria in the village we were saying in and then in the neighboring village, and then all of a sudden people heard about it and they started calling us and saying like, can you come to our village? And, and we really want this. And then do you have mosquito nets? And so we, so the actual interest in the education and even in purchasing mosquito nets, um, was, was there and it was really strong. And when, um, when we, when I finished that visit to Uganda, um, the original woman who had introduced me to the local translator from that particular village had said, Oh, you know, the LC one, which is like the mayor of the village we were staying in. He wants to talk to you. He's got a proposition for you. And I was like, okay, I have no idea what this means. So we met. And then he said, how would you like to build us a clinic? And I was like, ah, sure. What a great idea. I don't know anything about this. I, I mean, really, I know zero about this, but sure, it's a great idea. So they said, okay, wonderful. We'll donate the land and, and you build us a clinic. And so I thought, okay, you know, sure, we'll, I'll, we'll do this. And then I went home and I was like, okay, um, yeah, building a clinic. I don't know anything about this. I'm sure we can figure it out. And uh, so we had a little fundraiser and formally formed a nonprofit called Soft Power Health and raised $25,000 and built this clinic. Um, and that included, you know, all the power and the water and, um, waste disposal and 
and everything else. And, um, and then we opened our doors in January of 2006. And it was also really fun because the whole Jackson family came over and some Jackson team Jackson paddlers came over, you know, for our opening and we got to paddle of course. And, and, uh, they were there for the opening of the clinic. And, um, you know, at the same time, we continued this malaria outreach program. So that never stopped because it's, you know, even to this day, malaria is still the biggest infectious disease killer in Uganda. And um, there's a huge need for the education and prevention side of things to help control that disease. But um, since then, things have kind of, you know, slowly by slowly grown. And um, every year we saw more patients uh, we, based on the needs that the community expressed, developed other outreach programs. Our, the next one we did was family planning, which today is probably our largest outreach, actually, where same model of like education and offering different methods of family planning in the field. And then today at the clinic, we also offer every method of family planning that's available. Um, but interestingly enough, same thing, people, believe it or not, uh, did not, and many of them do not understand conception and hence contraception. So, you know, just getting at that really basic essential education helps people make better decisions for literally planning their families. You know, how big a family do I want to have? I don't necessarily want to have 15 kids because I can't feed them and I can't clothe them and I can't send them to school, you know? And, um, so all of that has been a really interesting learning process for me. And, um, we added two other outreach programs, one for nutrition and malnutrition, because that began to be a very big thing. We were treating at the clinic protein malnutrition in particular. Um, and then, uh, we have an outreach for domestic violence because that is also a very big problem, uh, in Uganda. That's, that's not addressed. So today, now we have, you know, a, a, a busy clinic. We saw 33,000 patients last year at the clinic. And then in our health education outreach programs, we see another uh, between 15 to 20,000 people um, a year. So we, we have, um, you know, a pretty big impact um, on, on our area. And then other people will travel from far away to see us as well. Uh, so that's sort of from this, you know, crazy idea, this kayaking trip and an educational, you know, intervention, all of this grew. So it, it sounds like just throughout everything that you just described, you really have this amazing ability to say, well, I have no idea how to do this, but we're going to go out and do it. Um, just like when uh, the idea to build the clinic uh, was proposed, you said, well, I've never built a clinic, but that doesn't mean we can't build one. Sure, let's do it. It's a great idea. Um, where did that mindset come from? And, and how do you go about convincing yourself and and putting that positivity in action of doing something that you've never done before and that you don't have experience with? I think, uh, I think the key really is with that, you know, for anything in life is just to take small steps at a time. Okay. Now we have a dog barking. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, small steps, like little baby steps and just keeping an open mind, just saying, being willing to try things. And, um, 
and not be afraid of that. I mean, I think there's, you know, of course, I think we all have a fear of the unknown. That's very natural and normal. But I think if you can put yourself in a frame of mind of, okay, this is going to be a different experience. I'm going to remain open to this experience. And if I don't like it, I can always change my mind, but I'm going to try it. And not thinking, um, you know, sometimes a task seems so enormous that it's impossible to get started. And so I think if you just think about doing it in little teeny steps, little bites, it's much, much easier. And if you give yourself credit for trying to do something, you know, that's out of the ordinary, that's not on the the beaten track and especially not for you, that helps a lot that, that, you know, helps a lot with your thinking because I think expectation holds a lot of people back from doing things that they're very capable of doing, you know, uh, assuming things have to be a certain way, whatever that way is. And instead, if you can remain open and say, I'm always learning and I'm allowed to make a lot of mistakes because we all do, um, that is probably more valuable than anything. I think it's incredible that after graduating from med school, um, you decided to take this time and go pursue something that you were extremely passionate about with kayaking. And I'm sure that you got a lot of questions and maybe pushback from friends and family of saying, why don't you go do your residency? Everyone else is going to do a residency. But ultimately, if you hadn't done... Uh, if you hadn't gone and pursued that with kayaking, then you never would have been in this situation, which really gave you the opportunity to combine these passions together. Um, when, if you can think back to that time when you graduated med school, what was some of the, um, what were some of the things that you were hearing from people in terms of the advice you were getting and, and how did you make that decision to, to take that time and and go out? Well, I think it was just like so clear to me because, um, I just realized that like I was going to be on a very different track um, and I was not interested in what everybody else was doing. I really was interested. I, I was sort of like obsessed with kayaking. I mean, I still am to a degree or to a large degree, but I, you know, there was nothing that was going to change my mind. I, I just felt like I got to pursue this thing that I love now. I can go back to medicine. It's not going anywhere, but kayaking, it might go somewhere you know, I, I, I need to do this now. And, um, and so that was, I, I kind of didn't really hear any other voices to be completely honest. And frankly, I was very lucky because, um, my father is somebody who had taken a very non-traditional path through life. So he set that example for all of us kids. And, um, he was, he really was the believer in do the thing that makes you happy you know, that you feel passionate about because that's how he lived his life. So that was a very powerful um, message to receive as a kid growing up and to then be able to pursue that. Now that you're well into what you've done so far with creating this incredible change in the Uganda healthcare system overall with soft power health, how, how is that mindset still prevalent in what you hope to accomplish for the future? I mean, it's very interesting because, you know, of course things change. I think, you know, I really feel like um, this may sound strange in the world that we live in today. I'm not interested in growth. I'm not interested in becoming bigger, better, faster, whatever. I'm interested in being 
able to continue to do what we do, the longevity of it, because we don't have to be, you know, the biggest healthcare provider in Uganda. We don't have to be anything like that. We just have to continue to provide a good quality service of healthcare for people who really need it and um, do that for a long time. And that will have a big positive impact on people's well-being and quality of life. And, um, and, and to be honest, the thing that has sort of allowed me to continue to do that is the fact that I have kayaking in my life right up to the present moment, because it is the thing that recharges my batteries and gives me, you know, the hope for the future of what's possible. Um, but, you know, in terms of let's say building your resume and saying, I'm going to do this or that. I'm not interested in that at all. I'm just interested in being able to continue to do what we do because it's a, it's a good, it's a really good service for people who really have nothing. Um, and the more I can kayak and do that while I'm healthy and able uh, you know, I, I feel incredibly grateful for that. I've had an amazingly long career in the paddling world and, um, I want to be able to keep doing that, you know, forever, potentially. If, if you could go back and tell the younger version of yourself when you were just starting med school, uh, or even just starting raft guiding, if you could give that younger version of yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Don't worry so much. <laughs> <laughs> do not worry so much about what's going to happen. Like try to enjoy each day and each moment as much as you possibly can. Um, because, you know, things have a way of working out. And um, I think also if you choose a positive attitude and, um, you know, embrace that as much as you possibly can, it seems to really be the case or that's been my experience, you know? Um, so I think uh, today in particular, people are spend a lot of time being worried and stressed out and overstimulated and um, they kind of need to go back to the basics of just get unplugged, go outside, walk around in bare feet in the grass and, uh, you know, listen to the birds singing in your backyard, smell the flowers, and then figure out what you really want to do and try to remove the noise because the noise just makes you stressed out and worried. So, um, it's easier said than done. Of course, you know, back when I was, uh, becoming a rap guide or when I went to med school, there were, there was a lot less noise out there that people, you know, could plug into. So we, I was luckier, I think. And I'd imagine it's pretty helpful when you have a really fun sport like kayaking to help disconnect and, and go out and, and do that through. A, a kind of fun well, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that because you know, it. <laughs> it's uh, for sure, you know, every day you get to be on the water, no matter what is a great day. Absolutely. I, I haven't done uh, quite as intensive stuff as, as you, but hopefully one day I'll get there. Yes, definitely. Come to the Nile before the dam is completed. That's what you need to do. Exactly. For sure. <laughs> All right, I'm on the way. I'll, I'll see Great. you in a couple of days. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Inside the Adventure. That was the story of Dr. Jesse Stone, the founder of Soft Power Health and the Ugandan healthcare hero that's helping to save the country from malaria. 
which, by the way, malaria is disease that is obviously transmitted through mosquito bites. And there's some exciting research coming out that might make mosquitoes not be able to bite you anymore because they might not exist. There's actually some scientific research that genetically alters a certain strain of mosquitoes, which once they mate with other mosquitoes, they render those mosquitoes sterile, which over time after the existing mosquitoes die off means no more baby mosquitoes, which means no more mosquitoes at all. So in the future, you may never have to wear that bug spray or worry about things like malaria. 